Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm sorry, the speaker system relaying sound to the little room isn't working this evening. We uh, left it on and the battery has died, so apologies um, to any of the, the mums. A better promise. A better promise is our theme uh, this evening. Or a better covenant. I want you to imagine uh, a young woman taken on as a servant. Her hours, her task, her job are all set out in a contract. Her salary is set out there as well. If she does this and this and this, then she will get this and this. The contract sets it all out in detail. And she undertakes, and he undertakes for her, and she makes promises, and he makes promises. Imagine, too, that the demands are arduous, and even on her best days, she's not able to meet the standards. The relationship between her and her employer is shaped by this covenant, this contract, and her ability to meet its requirements. And she always fails. But then a, a day comes when she finds herself standing at the front of a church with her boss. And she's dressed in white. And he is putting a ring on her finger. And vows have been exchanged. And the minister is saying, as a sign of the covenant into which you have entered, these rings are given and received. Promises have again been made. But these are a a far better, far deeper, far richer set of promises than the original. These are better promises. And although they're still going to see each other every day, and although she's going to be doing in some ways much the same work, everything has changed. The relationship is on a vastly different footing. It's deeper and it's richer and it's more personal. And having imagined all of that, Can you now imagine her saying at some stage in her marriage, you know, can I go back to the old promises, the old covenant, the old contract? Well, it would be madness, wouldn't it? She has a far better covenant, a far better set of promises. Now, there are many shortfalls and many failings with that illustration Um, It's not in terms of displaying what's in Hebrews chapter 8. It's not really meant to explain the complexities of the relationship between God and His people, but maybe just to shine a little bit of light and to illustrate the idea of a better covenant and the folly of going back to the previous one. Especially if you couldn't keep up the requirements of that covenant. It gives us something of a flavor of what is being said in this part of the letter. Now remember where we are in the book of Hebrews. These people are facing persecution and pressure. They also have a a hankering and nostalgia for the highly visual and long-established Old Testament sacrifices. And the system of the priest and the temple. 
And they've a desire for the certainty and the assurance that those brought to them. And they're thinking of going back to the old covenant, to the old ways and turning away from Christ. And the author is showing them that Jesus is superior to everything that went before. And that everything that went before was pointing to him. And that everything he brings is superior. And the author is now um, honing in on the very core of their longing. He's talked about Jesus superior to the prophets and to the angels and to Moses and to Joshua. But that, that was, as it were, touching on other points of their history. But, but now he's honing in on the very heart of the issue, the priest and the temple and the sacrifices and the forgiveness. And you see, all of these, the priest the temple, the sacrifice, they were set out in God's covenant with Moses, given at Sinai. Given amidst the glory of Mount Sinai. We read from the end of Exodus 24 about the mountain trembling and the smoke of the the, the top of the mountain. Moses entering into this great smoke and fire at the top of the mountain. How majestic it must have been. And they had the terms of the covenant written by the finger of God himself on these slabs of stone. You see how immense and significant this moment is. They are the covenant people. And there had been a solemn ceremony, a binding ceremony in Exodus 24. And we read of it and the people said, we will do it. All that is there, we will do it. How they were to worship was set out. How they were to live as God's people. The covenant was central. And it was like a, a, a central piece of a puzzle that holds everything else in place. And God had spoken and God had promised and God had bound himself. The priest, the sanctuary, the sacrifice. They were all details in the covenant. And we can understand his arguments about the priest and the sanctuary and uh, the sacrifice. But this one about covenant, we think, well, why is this here? But it's because those other things are listed in the covenant document. And it's not just enough to say, oh, there's a better one of those. But that would mean that God has changed the terms of his covenant. And how, how can you, after all that he did with Moses, how can we be sure that all these other things have changed because they were in the covenant that God made? And the writer, is, he's spoken about Jesus having a better priesthood. He's going in chapter 9 to talk about Jesus serving in a better sanctuary. And in chapter 10, he's going to speak about Jesus offering a better sacrifice. But he must deal with the issue of the covenant. Does God change his mind? Does God change his word? Does God keep his promises? That's why he speaks here of a better promise. And Jesus being the mediator of a superior covenant. The opening five verses we're not going to go into in any detail at all really because they are an introduction to this section and we will touch on them a little bit more. By the time he gets to verse 6 he's got to what he's going to talk about, the covenant. In verse 1 he talks about Jesus being a priest. We do have such a high priest. 
Jesus is the better priest. He's, he's recapping the previous chapter. In verse 2, he's talking about the better sanctuary. That'll be chapter 9. I'll unpack that in more detail. In verse 3, he speaks about the, the sacrifices and the gifts that the priests were to offer. That'll be unpacked in chapter 10. And then in verse 6, he introduces the key piece of covenant. He says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. See, the word superior is used twice. New is used. Better is used. And then we meet this word covenant, and it's an old word, really. We don't use it much. It's a dry word. But it's a key word. It's in this chapter seven times. It's 15 times in the letter. It's 350 times or so in the whole of the Bible. But what does it mean? We're going to see that this evening. What was wrong with the old one? And how does Jesus bring about a better one? And we're going to have to take a little bit of time thinking about the old one so that we can understand the new one, so that we can see that what we've got is better. It would be a little bit like uh, getting your children to wash clothes the old way with the mangle and the old tub with the stick and pounding them uh, and then the scraper board thing uh, and then putting them through the mangle to, to dry them out. And after they've done that for several days, you then introduce them to the washing machine. They go, oh, this is great. This is great. So... In a sense, that's a little bit... We look at the Old Covenant, so we go, Oh, wow! Wow! What we've got is so much better because of Jesus. So that's our goal this evening. So first of all, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? And a covenant is like glue. It's like glue. Um, That's the untechnical way of putting it. The technical way of putting it is a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two parties. In the Bible, it's mostly, it's often between God and man. One writer puts it this way, it's an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if they are broken. An agreement between God and human beings, where God promises blessings if conditions are met and threaten curses if they're broken. It's like the glue that sticks God and people together. And it's the great glue that holds the whole storyline of the Bible together as we go through from one major moment to the next. God cements his relationship with people by his covenants. At each new stage, At each new moment of vulnerability. That's a key thought. At each new moment of vulnerability. See, Adam and Eve sinned. They're vulnerable. And God speaks a word of promise. God judges the world with the flood. And what does he do? He speaks a word of promise. Abraham is childless. And God has said he's going to to bless him if he follows him. And God enters into a covenant promising that God would rather be destroyed than break his word to Abraham. God, at moments of vulnerability, makes a promise. 
binds himself to it. It's the glue that holds not just God and man together, but all of Scripture together. That's a wonderful glue. At the heart of it is a very simple phrase. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's it. I will be your God and you will be my people. We find that in various ways all over the Bible. We find it in Exodus 6 verse 7. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Uh, We see it in multiple places. Uh, And you know what? We find it The very last book of the Bible, Revelation 21.3, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, or verse 7, I will be their God and they will be my children. Isn't that wonderful? What God said he would do in Exodus 6, what what he had promised Abraham, what he had promised through Jeremiah, what we were reading here, John peeking into the future and seeing the redeemed people of God. He says, God kept his word. And he reports back to us on earth. I've seen it. I've seen it. God keeps his word. It's a glue. The glue itself cannot be broken. As we go through the Bible, after Adam's catastrophic failure, God starts a gracious covenant. We call it the covenant of grace. And there's different chapters to it as he, he writes more into the story. With, there's a chapter for Noah. And there's a chapter with Abraham. And there's a chapter with Moses and Israel. And there's a chapter with David. And all of it's building along until they all find their fulfillment. In Jesus Christ. That's a covenant. God's great plan to have a people for himself. It lies at the heart of the Bible's story. Like in a sense wedding vows lie at the heart of a couple's love story. What's a covenant? Secondly, what was wrong with the old one? Our headings aren't terribly memorable this evening. They're just simply questions for the most part. What was wrong with the old one? So that's a covenant. But in Hebrews 8, the writer says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a superior covenant, which has better promises. And then he says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. He's anticipating these uh, readers saying to him, Listen, are you seriously saying that we have a new priest because a new priest means there's got to be a new covenant because priesthood, sacrifice, and sanctuary all are part of the covenant and you can't change one without changing the other. And he says, well, yes. Then he's going to say, that's why way back in the Old Testament, God said there would be a new covenant. He says, God's already told you that. Like he said last time, about Melchizedek. God's already flagged this up to you. God already indicated that he would make a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. And so the antenna should have been attuned for this moment. But what was wrong with the old covenant? And Sometimes people go astray at this point. They get a, a wrong idea. 
Uh, and without wanting to confuse us, I want to just dismiss some of the wrong ideas because some of our fellow believers hold to them and it then shapes their attitude to the Old Testament in, in ways that I think are deeply unhelpful. So some people point the finger at the covenant itself. They say, look at verse 7. Verse 7, it says, if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, it's saying there's something wrong with it. And what could be wrong with it? And some Christians say, well, what was wrong? And the covenant in view here is specifically the one with Moses. For in the one with Moses, the sanctuary, the sacrifice, and the priesthood are set out. What was wrong with it? Well, the covenant with Moses, they say, they say, was a salvation by works scheme. If you do this, do this, do this, do this, then you will live. If you obey all these commands, you will be accepted into God's kingdom. And now God has a different scheme. The target was set too high in the Old Testament. And now God has changed his mind. That clearly wasn't it. Because over and over again, the Old Testament, we see that it is by grace that we're saved. Psalm 51. In thy vast abounding grace, my transgressions all erase. It's through grace that God deals with sin. The people bring the sacrifices that God has said. And they are allowed to have their sins counted against a substitute. That's grace. Forgiveness is not earned, but granted by means of God's designed sacrifices. Some say, well, the Old Testament was about a covenant of works, about a, a earn your own salvation, and God says, no, that's not working. We'll have to come up with a different plan. But that has a domino effect on our view of God. Did he not, was he not wise enough to see that? Did he not know? Or maybe they would say, well, he wanted us to learn it because we're not wise enough. But I don't think that's it either. It is one of the lessons that we learn throughout the Old Testament, but not necessarily what the covenant was. Some say that the Old Covenant was faulty because it was merely external. It was merely external. It didn't deal with the heart. It told people to live right on the outside, but it didn't deal internally. And you sometimes read this from writers in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, You have heard that it is said, do not murder. But I say to you that if you uh, say your brother's a fool, you've committed murder. Or if you've been angry with your brother, you've committed murder. You've heard that it is said, do not commit adultery. But anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has broken the commandment. Say, so you see, there's the new is internal and the old was only external. And we think, well, really? Is that what we get when we look through the Old Testament? When we look at David again in Psalm 51, you desire truth in the inward parts. Psalm 19, may all the words I speak and all the thoughts within come up before your sight and thine approval win. Or the very last commandment, do not covet. Where's coveting happen? In your head, in your heart. So that's not it either. 
God was interested in the Old Testament on the internal things, and he quite often slates the people for their hypocrisy, being right on the outside and wrong on the inside. If we keep that imagery of covenant being like glue, the fault is not with the glue. The fault is not with the glue. That's what some other Christians are saying. The fault is with the glue. The covenant itself is faulty. The fault is not with the glue. If you look at the next verse, but God found fault with the people. There's where the fault lies. There's where the fault lies. It's a bit like somebody saying, uh, my marriage is in difficulty. Uh, There's a problem in my marriage, and the problem isn't with the vows that were taken. The problem isn't in the covenant of marriage. The problem is with one or both of the people. Whenever the writer says there's a, there's a fault with the covenant, the next verse says the fault is with the people. And so the fault is not with the glue, but it's with the surface the glue is seeking to attach to. God had rescued the people, and they were to live right. And they said they would live right. We read that in Exodus 24, verse 7. They said, All that the Lord had spoken to them, we will do, and we will be obedient. And they failed over and over again. The problem wasn't with the covenant. The problem was with the people. They couldn't do it. Verse 9 of our chapter. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. They didn't live in full obedience. They didn't live in obedience. And because they couldn't do it, they couldn't enjoy God's blessing. And they left themselves open to God's curses. The problem is the people. And the the sin of the people means that even at its best, there's a distance between God and the people. He dwells with them. But over there, inside a courtyard that they're not allowed inside, and inside a tent or a tabernacle or a temple that they're not allowed inside. Only certain people are allowed inside. And the people that are allowed inside, they're faulty themselves. And there's a sense of distance because of the sinfulness of the people. God is in the camp, but there are there are boundaries to keep them back from God because of their sinfulness. And even the sinfulness of their representatives means that the representatives have to keep a distance. This is, there's a distance here. And, and the, the sense of forgiveness, although very real, isn't perfect because the sacrifices need to keep on being repeated. And there's not, you know, the bull didn't sin. The sheep didn't sin. And because the people keep on sinning, could you be sure that you were forgiven? Because the people are the problem. And yes, the law, the law that was given externally, and they were to write it on their doorposts, and to, to, Deuteronomy 6 says, to wear it on their foreheads and to to have it on their arms. Um, But it also says they are to put it in their hearts. And even though some loved it and put it on their hearts, as I said, they were, as it were, putting it on their hearts. There's still something not quite right. The sin of the people is hindering 
the, the covenant. So the old covenant has flaws. That brings us to the third thing. What is better in the new covenant? What is better in the new covenant? Well, at the very core, it's the same promise. If you look at verse 10, the last uh, clause of verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people. Nothing has changed. It's not a brand spanking new covenant. It's the same covenant there has always been. But yet there's something new and fresh about it. It's the same great promise at the core. And there's four things. There's three things that are specifically mentioned at the end. But before we get there, there's something that is stated that we need to grasp. So there's four things that are better. Four things that are new. And the first thing to grasp is there's a new mediator. A new mediator. And we see this in verse 6. That there is a new mediator. The ministry Jesus has received is as superior uh, to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. There's a new covenant with a new mediator. A new mediator is going to come. And you see, this, these verses in Jeremiah 31 come at one of the lowest points, if not the lowest point of Israel's history. They have failed miserably and they are in exile. They're away from the promised land. All the covenant curses have landed on them. And they're wondering, is there any hope for me that has failed so much? And us as a nation, is there any hope? And God comes and if you have time, read Jeremiah 31. It starts off, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I will build you up again. You will go out and dance with the joyful. It's a chapter filled with hope and wonderful promises. But, but how? How can that be for these failed people? We come to the end. And God says, I will make a new covenant. He says, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it in their hearts and I will be their God and I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Six I wills. God is going to do it. This covenant is going to all be about God. And although it's not specifically unpacked here, what is going to make that happen is that God is going to step in and he is going to be the other party in the covenant. God and man are the two parties in the covenant. And God says, I am going to step in and I am going to become man because you can't do it. And now, as if the problem wasn't the glue, and the problem was the surface, the, the manward surface, God says, well, I'll step in. And I'll do it because that glue will stick to me. And, that will, and the whole thing will stick together. I will do it for you. We are the problem. And God is going to step in and to be the solution. He is going to, to be the new mediator, both God and man. The problem was us. And we couldn't do it. And so God says, I will. And we get a glimpse of this over in chapter 9 and verse uh, 4, I think it is. No, it's verse 14. Sorry, verse 14. 
And we read in verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from uh, acts of death, acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God for this reason? What reason? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. For this reason that Christ offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice. Oh, that's what we've been waiting for. A perfect mediator. A perfect sacrifice. One to stand in our shoes without any barrier of sin. And here he is, the new mediator. Here's what's better. God will not find fault, but God found fault with the people. Well, who's standing on behalf of the people now? God says, I will. I will. I'll stand on behalf of the people. And so he steps into human form. And can God find fault with our mediator? No. No. What a wonderful thing. The new covenant is better because Jesus, the perfect God-man, is the mediator. He will not fail. and He will not fall. In Hebrews 4, we see uh, that he's been tested in every way. And yet... He was without sin. And therefore, he's now in the throne of grace. And we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive grace and help and time. Those are covenant blessings. And we get the covenant blessings not because we're perfect. We're fouled up. But our mediator is flawless. Flawless. We see the mess that Israel got into when its priests were a mess. They didn't enjoy covenant blessings. But our priest is perfect. With him God can find no fault. We have a new mediator. A new mediator. And then these three great statements uh, in verses um, 10, 11, and 12. We have a new nature. We We have a new nature. Oh, we're not made perfect yet. But remember, the old covenant people had God's law written on stone. But what does God say now? I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will write them in their hearts. And you say, but hold on now, Mark. You said that the Old Testament people were to put God's law in their heart. And the psalmist says, Thy word have I hid in my heart. Ah, that's true. They weren't just simply to have it stored away in their memories. It was to be in their heart to influence their lives. But I think there's something deeper going on here. God is saying, I will write it. I will engrave it into their hearts so that everything that comes out of their hearts starts to bear the hallmark, the stamp of my law, my word. He's speaking about us being internally changed. A new nature by which we start to live the word of God. It's as if We've got God reprogramming our lives. Once we become Christians, He starts to reprogram our habits. He edits the code of the computer file, as it were, in our our minds, and He starts to change it so that we start to obey. And He reprograms our hearts so we start to value what He values. He's programming us for obedience. What an encouragement. And it's it's not instant. But our high priest is perfect all the time and God relates to us through him. So yes, our failures matter, but they are not catastrophic. 
So here's a removal of our inability to obey. We are being made able to obey. What a wonderful thing. You know, maybe a car or maybe a piece of software has a a thing called a limiter in it so that you can't do certain things. And then somebody comes along with a, a computer and removes that limiter or that limitation. And the car is able to go much better. And the software and the computer is able to do much more. Well, God removes, as it were, the limitation of our, in our souls and we are now enabled to obey Him. Sin had put a, a limitation. The, the binding clasp of sin and Satan had, had constrained our souls so that we were not able to obey. And that has been cut and our souls are beginning to expand so that we can obey. And it's hard to know the experience of the Old Testament believer. But it seems to me in reading this that there is something of that that they did not know. We know it at a much deeper level. Yes, they could obey. But there's something more internal about this. Something about the transformation Yes, we're an ongoing project. But God has said, I, I will change you. Third point here, a new mediator, a new nature, a new closeness. A new closeness. If there was a removal of a fallen mediator and a removal of the old nature, here's a removal of distance. Verse 11, no longer will they teach their neighbor Or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. Is that saying that some people in the Old Testament, some believers didn't really know who God was? No, that's not it. God dwelt among them. The tabernacle and the temple, right in the middle. He revealed himself in sacrifices at the temple. You read the Psalms. These appointed psalmists clearly knew God. And yet, there's part of our answer. There was an appointed place. And there were appointed people. And there were prophets who were anointed and appointed. There were priests who were anointed and appointed. There were kings who were anointed and appointed. And all of the Old Testament knowing was ring-fenced. There was, as it were, it was tied in to particular people. And it was at the temple, as it were, mostly. And there it was inside the courtyard. And it was inside the holy place. It was inside the Holy of Holies. It was at a distance. And the ordinary Israelite knew something of God through the work of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And yes, they knew God, but mediated through somebody else. But now... It's going to be up close. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Here's a removal of distance. Here is you, able in your house, Rafoe, or St. Johnson, or Milford, or Letterkenny, or Port Lean, or Convoy, or wherever it is you are, Dremore, to sit down. And to know God's presence with you. You don't need a prophet, a priest, or a king. There is God with you. And God making himself known to you. 
and God's speaking to you. And more than that, even richer than that, think of what Jesus says when he says, my Father and I will come and make our home in your heart. We will know him. The, the, through the Holy Spirit, God, it's, it's not as if we're being reprogrammed from a distance. God is taking up residence in us to change us. Now that's close. There's no distance. Think of your privilege in this covenant. An incredible closeness. And then fourthly, a new assurance. A new assurance, a removal of doubt. A removal of doubt. Verse 12, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Well, how is this new? Were not the Old Testament people forgiven? Of course they were. Think of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Think about it. The forgiveness was always based on sacrifice. And maybe in getting to the temple and offering a sacrifice. And maybe there's a delay. And then your conscience is accusing you. And maybe you live far from the temple and it was a long time to the next festival or the next day of atonement. And that awareness of your sin burdening you. Now, I wonder if there could be a sacrifice of such staggering, infinite value and such permanent worth that a person could know that all their past, present, and future sins were forgiven. God said, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll be that sacrifice. Your sins I will remember no more. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. A sacrifice, our forgiveness that was full and final. A mediator who was a man like us, not a bull or a goat or a lamb. And about him it was said that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The iniquities that of us all were laid on him. And he cried out, It is finished. And so you can know that you are forgiven and that your sins will be remembered no more. Here's the removal of doubt and delay. Here is a far fuller assurance than I think any Old Testament believer could have had. We rejoice with David as we sing Psalm 32. Blessed is the man indeed, yes. But he had to wait, as it were, until the next sacrifice and the next sacrifice but we have one sacrifice. What glorious certainty the new covenant brings. It brings more certainty because God has stepped into our shoes to open up the way. He has stepped into our hearts to present, or to imprint rather, to imprint His Word there so that we are being changed. And He has stepped into our hearts to bear witness that we are forgiven and that we are children of God. That's why it's better. It brings more certainty than you could ever have begun to imagine were you an Old Testament Christian.
One writer says, The I wills of God rob doubting man of his uncertainty. The I wills of God rob doubting man of his uncertainty. We might want to know how do we apply this. I think the best way to apply this is to be filled with thankfulness and to realize that you know our salvation is not Jesus went to the cross and we're trying now to make up by doing our best. You know, he did part A and we're to do part B by trying really hard. No. He has done it all. He has done it all. And yes, we are being transformed because God in his kindness said, you're not in any fit state for me to base my assessment on your behavior, so I'll base it on Christ's behavior. But I will not leave you as you are. But I will write my word in your heart. And oh, you're going to fail. God says, but I'll forgive you. And he says, I won't step away. I'll be there for you. You'll know me. And how thankful that we should be that for broken people, who stumble and fall on the journey between the city of destruction and the heavenly city, that we have a God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's because we've got a new covenant. Amen. Let's stand, if we're able, and come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, Thank you that we get to live in 2021. That we don't live in 2021 BC. For even if we were there with Abraham and we had those magnificent moments and we got to be part of his family, there is a depth of the riches of the wisdom and the glory and the grace and the mercy and the patience of God that we would not have seen And we get to see it now. And we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, for our new mediator, the one who has done what we couldn't do, so that this bond between the people of God and their God would never be torn apart through weakness and failure on our part. Thank you for our mediator. Thank you, too, for your wonderful, wonderful forgiveness that is past, present, and future. Thank you, too, for your programming and reprogramming of our hearts and lives. And, Lord God, yes, help us to live as rescued people. Thank you that you have taken up residence in us to help us to live as rescued people. And so help us not to grieve the Holy Spirit who indwells us and transforms us and reassures us that we are forgiven. Help us to walk in step with him instead and enjoy this wonderful blessing that it is to be part of your covenant people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.